welcome to another edition of the Beer Vana Podcast. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. How you doing? Pretty good, given the recent trials and tribulations we've had here. Uh, yeah, among all of the natural catastrophes that have hit the United States, uh, forest fires have been our local bane. Yeah, we our skies were yellow and smoky and ash were, was floating down for about a week. Yeah, it was pretty horrendous. It was. Uh, it wasn't fun to be around. It wasn't fun to know that one of the most scenic and well-visited parts of Oregon, close to the Portland metro area, was in flame. It was really crushing a lot of us. But apparently they saved the uh, the most touristic part, the, the Multnomah Falls uh, Lodge and the Falls area themselves, itself. So that's some comfort. Some comfort. <laughs> I, I think you're a little bit more... Uh, you're less hopeful about how bad things are out there than I am. Hope springs eternal. Yeah. It's going to be a couple of scorched spots, otherwise pristine. That's what I say. Well, I'm going to give it 10 years. It'll be fine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> 50 years. Yeah. Uh, uh, they do grow know. fast here. But. Yeah. I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll see. It is the climate. Yeah. Things grow fast. It'll green up quickly. Um, but the big old trees. But you know what that means, of course, that Portland's done. So nobody should move here. Yeah, and yeah, you probably don't need to visit either unless you're here for the beer. <laughs> uh, it's nice that we finally have some typical weather for September. Uh, it's beautiful and sunny, but not scorching hot, which it was during these forest fires, which made everything that much worse. It was. It was just terrible. It was like the apocalypse. Yeah. Which anyway. is, you know, for, for our friends in, in uh, Miami and Houston, we apologize for our complaints. but Yeah, it's small beans. But um, if you live in Ames, Iowa, man, it was terrible here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they live in Ames, so I mean, <laughs> oh, man, you're just copping a big attitude, never. especially for a guy who lived in the Midwest. Never. Well, that's it. I lived in Wisconsin. I don't care about Iowa. Come on. <laughs> uh, all right. So, uh, welcome to the Beer Vana Podcast. With me, of course, is Jeff Allworth, author of the recently revealed, uh, revealed, <laughs> recently, it is kind of a revelation. Oh man, released secrets of master brewers. By the way. I was at Steinbart's just the other day getting some hops to dry hop our uh, English Best Bitter that we brewed. And there was your book. Yeah. Right, it, right got, there. We got it on there. And I noticed that you signed them too. So I did. For those of you local, run down to Steinbart's and get your signed copy of Secrets of the Master Brewers. Uh, he also uh, is the author of old favorites like The Beer Bible and Cider Made Simple. And you can find him blogging at Beervana in his fancy new uh website um and uh he's also got the beer vana um uh face uh, beer vana blog facebook page and you tweet at beer vana oh, I, I added some extra stuff there you did <laughs> you got the whole the whole kielbasa there with me is patrick emerson professor of economics at oregon state university and you can find him tweeting mainly tweeting at, uh, <laughs> beeronomics pretty good on the tweets you're been... i've decided yeah actually i've kind of decided that that's the appropriate medium for my yeah. lifestyle these days. And I I, I I don't think I'll even make the pretense of trying to keep up the blogging very much because um, 140 characters works for me and I can... You're a, pith, you're a man of pith and, and consequence. You only need 144 characters or 140 did, characters. In your I did actually account. have, you know, something that would have normally been a blog post on my other blog, my regular econ blog. I ended up doing a three-part tweet to sort of make my point. But still, that was much... That, that's a that's a time commitment I can handle. And <laughs> <laughs> better to do one thing right than two things bad. <laughs> All right. Well, so today we're going to talk. We're going to explore the life of a large regional pioneer in craft brewing, and the opportunities and challenges it faces. Last month, uh, as uh, 
listeners of the pod are well aware, Jeff visited New England, um, and when he did, he stopped into Harpoon Brewery and took a tour uh, with Jamie Shire, Jamie Shire, and then later sat down and spoke with founder and CEO Dan uh, Canary. Ooh, even he, you put a little pronunciation there, so it made me pause. I was going to blow right through it, but you, but I wouldn't have said it that way. So good way to break through the fourth wall there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to listen to a part of that interview and discuss the current moment in craft beer and look for a podcast extra in which we'll post the full interview with Dan. Cool. Uh, but first, of course, the news. So this first bit of news actually hits kind of uh, close to home for us, uh, All About Beer Magazine, our sponsor, uh, has purchased Draft Magazine. Um, it looks like the plan, and I'm not, I'm actually, we should probably know more about this, but I don't know too much. Uh, <laughs> we weren't there at the last corporate meeting. That's right. <laughs> um, it looks like the plan is that All About Beer will be a print, uh, the print side and Draft will be online. Uh, when Draft released the news uh, of the sale, this is how they put it. Current subscribers to Draft Magazine will solely receive All About Beer Magazine going forward, while Draft will continue to build its innovative brand through DraftMag.com and other digital assets. Hmm. So, That's I'd, probably a good thing, man. The print media is such a tough business. Yeah, it's true, especially mags. Yeah, especially magazines. So hopefully there will be some economies of scale. <laughs> economies of something, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> They're certainly not getting their money's worth out of us. <laughs> yeah, we, we're kind of more digital than we are print. We're absolutely not print. Yeah. I wonder if we're going to soon be sponsored by Draft Magazine. Yeah, maybe it'll be the Draft Magazine podcast huh. things. I don't know. what. Yeah. Uh, well, there you go. Anyway, well, more more as we learn of it, which clearly is is nothing now so are there other those are the two major national publications uh beer advocate is uh all right yeah. uh has a nice print mag and ben keen is the editor there when it, ben and and john hall when john hall was still at all about beer uh-huh. uh, both started roughly at the same time they're two young smart guys and they really upped their game those two bat- those two mags were battling for a while for talent and stories and stuff um so ben's still doing great work so there'll be two after this there'll be sort of two major national yeah there's others too um but yeah Yeah. but they won't be mentioned here because our benefactors are all about beer that's right right. all right and the next uh news uh actually made a fair amount of news in the beery world was that uh abi announced that it was laying off around 350 employees uh, these are all or mostly in the high end. Yeah, that's that's what they said. Yeah, and the cuts are designed to eliminate overlapping sales jobs. The high end, of course, is their their uh, I don't know galaxy of craft beer brands, including locals Ten Barrel and uh, others. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Goose Island, Wicked Weed, uh, Elysian. Okay, thank yeah. you. <laughs> Etc. I haven't had enough coffee this morning. Uh, I know. I tried to get you some caffeine, but you blew me off. So this is interesting. What I was trying to figure out is whether when they each time they acquired a new craft brand, did they did they sort of hire a staff around that brand and are now sort of consolidating, or do you have any, I, any idea? I this I don't, I don't understand the beer business as well as you'd think I would. So I'm not entirely sure what's going on here. Uh, at first, I thought it was. Um, 
they were look, getting rid of some redundancy about people who actually sell uh, each brand, but I think the brand, the, the, the people responsible for selling brands are still there, which would make a lot of sense. So, so let me play devil's advocate here because I can see you know, the conspiracy theorists already concocting. So here's my conspiracy theory, uh, that um, they're doing away with people whose job it was to particularly grow a, a craft the craft brands or a craft brand and now it's going to be a generalized sales force that's out there shilling bud bud light goose island ten barrel blah 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 i think that's right oh well <laughs> okay Wait. i better put on my tinfoil hat <laughs> uh yeah i mean it could could well be that would be the sort of the the darker interpretation Wait, i'm sorry say that again that the it, that these uh layoffs are of people whose job it was to focus solely on craft beer and now they're bringing bringing them more into the corporate fold and uh commingling them with their macro brews um in terms of sales and support i believe they are doing that okay so there you are yeah why wouldn't they uh i don't know you go to a retailer and you're going to sell them what they want i'm not arguing one 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 way or other but uh i can imagine that people um, craft beer enthusiasts might worry that that's just another way of of diluting the the brands they've bought and eventually uh, having them turn into um, uh, just support supports for the the mother load, which is Bud Light or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I mean, it, it's it, it's kind of astounding to me that people wouldn't think that's why Anheuser Busch bought those brands in the first place. Like that, they are Anheuser Busch. I mean, I I. That kind of mystifies me. That okay, okay. So let me let me rephrase because I'm not making myself uh, clear. Well, I'm dim-witted on this. <laughs> Meaning that uh, a, the benign interpretation is: look, they understand that growth is in craft beer. That the best way to grow craft beer is to let these local, re- local and regional craft brewers do their thing and operate relatively independently. And we'll support you with your dedicated staff of sales and distribution. Blah blah blah. Yeah. The less benign interpretation is, look, we're getting beat up by craft beer, so let's try to start wedging our way into those markets. Let's buy, let's sort of uh, do so by buying a local brand first, and, and we'll start bringing it into the corporate fold. We'll lower price. We'll start shoving out the competitors, and eventually we'll have our space cleared for, uh, you know, Budweiser, Bud Light, and Goose Island 312 or whatever. 312, something like that. Yeah, I think that's right. IPA uh, is probably the one they're really pushing. But yeah. yeah. Uh, and so they're not really interested in the long-term health and independence of the craft beer, but they're really just using it as a way to, to rethink their national strategy. Yeah, I, 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 bet, I bet there's not one view even within ABI on that point. I mean, I bet there's yeah. they're not sure they necessarily have to make that decision right away. Um, I have to say, the first time I saw this news, I thought, of course, there's going to be redundancies, and of course, they're going to lose some staff in this high end. So it didn't actually surprise me at all. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know. Okay. Good. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> uh, all right. You're next. Okay. This last little bit is would would maybe not float to the to our to the level of our attention, but we're all about segue and. Uh, what is that synergy here? So this last little piece is a, is about uh, Lord Hobo Brewing, which announced recently that it had sold a minority stake to Volterra Partners, uh, which is a boutique private equity firm. 
Um, and the reason we mention this is because we tasted boom sauce the last time, Lord Hobo's boom sauce the last time we had a podcast. Boom sauce. And later, uh, and we found it a little bit wanting. It was, we were not super impressed. And uh, yeah, and we discovered it was kind of an old, an old can. can yeah. Uh, in the interim, um, through a connection we'll describe in due course, uh, we came across three cans of uh, Lord Hobo beer, including another boom sauce that's purportedly very a lot more fresh. So we'll be tasting some Lord Hobo. And it's interesting, um, Lord Hobo was only founded in 2015. So it was a really brand new brewery, to, mm-hmm. uh, two years old, and it grew 400% last year. So I think, you know, one thing that we're seeing here is uh, some of these young, these little breweries have intentions to grow and be successful. And, yeah, and 400% growth is a good thing to sell to a, a venture capital firm. <laughs> hey, guess what? <laughs> well, and also stats Ain't are, no tech firm doing that. That's Also, stats are funny, too. After one year, if you made 200 barrels and you made 800 barrels the next time, you grew by 400%, which is, you know, it's impressive, but it's actually not that much growth. So I wish I, I, I would like to have known how many barrel barrels that was but but in either case uh it shows that uh lord hobo is a brewery of ambition and, and wants to compete in that competitive market yeah and it's synergistic in a number of ways because we'll be tasting the lord hobo beer and they're also a massachusetts-based brewery we're we'll talking about harpoon today so i know it's just rich with textures of, it's like one of those seinfeld in- episodes where everything just sort of <laughs> comes together in the end it's true uh okay um i'm gonna actually i'm gonna throw in a flyer here because you um uh Bonus that, news? Sort of. I mean, you mentioned this in your blog, and I wanted to make a quick point about it, which you mentioned that the Commons Brewery, which is a local, oh, yeah, of course. A local brewery in Portland, is um, closing down. And I am interested in this because of the whole economics of the thing. Um, uh, they will. They are essentially closing but selling and selling their brewery and their space to... Uh, a San Diego brewer whose name escapes me. Not uh, Modern Times. Modern Times. Not quite accurate. Okay. Though. They own the brewery, right? The building, and they're leasing out the space. Oh, good for them. And I believe that they will make a profit that way. So that's actually one way of um, keeping revenues coming in. And and I know that Mike Wright, the owner, would like to see the Commons come back in some other incarnation. So we'll, we'll see if that happens. It will not be at that wonderful location just on the east side of the Morrison Bridge, though. That's right. I do remember <laughs> commenting to myself when you was reading your, your blog post that, uh, that he bought that space, which is a pretty big play. Right. Uh, and he started out as a nanobrewer, is that correct? That's right, in his garage. Yeah. One, so, like one barrel, basically a, a uh, homebrew. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's tragic for many of us in the Portland area because one of my favorite Portland beers is the Urban Farmhouse yeah. that, com, that Commons brews. It's, I guess we call it their flagship. Yeah. As close, as close to a flagship as they have, that would be the one. It's a really delightful saison uh, uh, and um, uh, but it's always one that I've not actually consumed that much of because uh, they sell magnums and the magnums price point is usually around 10 bucks right um, and so uh, so considering it's one of these shakeouts of the craft brewing boom uh, um, I wonder how much that other people are like me and and finding sort of good alternatives at lower price points. And this is sort of an in- indicative of the way that the craft beer market is maturing, and at least in Portland. Maybe. Uh, one of the themes in the, the pod, podcast today is going to be how 
each brewery has its own particular context. Mm -hmm. And I think that if you, at some point, maybe we can sit down with Mike Wright and talk about this for the podcast. I think that would be really nice once he gets things figured out. Um, Breweries always have their own particular context. So he bought a, you know, he bought this building. Well, if he hadn't bought that building, he wouldn't have been as heavily leveraged. And then would he still be in business? We wouldn't be talking about the 750s that he sells the beer in. I mean, so there's a lot of particular factors that contribute to each one of these successes or failures yeah uh, where if you jigger the the details a little bit it would go differently so drawing overarching uh, lessons about an, a, a market from one one data point can be troublesome yeah uh point taken yeah okay so the beer vana podcast is brought to you by all about beer magazine as we mentioned before, explore the culture of beer through award-winning news, reviews, education, and insights. Print and digital subscriptions are available by visiting allaboutbeer.com. And go to our friends at draftbeer.draft. What is it? Draft, draftmag.com. Draftmag. Com. Our sister site. Our sister site, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we'll start plugging them. I'm not even sure if the deal's done. Is it That's deal? right. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe we're supposed to hold off. <laughs> All right. So uh, now on to our main topic. So... The Harpoon Brewery was founded in 1986 and in 1993 launched their region-defining flagship IPA. In 2000, the brewery bought the former Catamount plant in Windsor, Vermont. Together, the two sites produce about 200,000 barrels a year, making Harpoon the 27th largest brewery in the country. But now, as a new wave of brand new breweries have entered the New England market, Harpoon is entering an uncomfortable middle age. When Jeff spoke to founders and CEO Dan Canary, uh, he asked about where the brewery has been, where it is now, and where it is going. So I want to say before before we even get started that um, when I was uh, a graduate student um, in upstate New York, uh, Harpoon was, um, this, is, this is back in the uh, mid-1990s. Uh, Harpoon was one of my go-to beers. Uh, the last century. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, uh, <laughs> it feels like yesterday to me, yeah. <laughs> but now I realize what middle age is all about. Uh, yeah, so it was kind of kind of a long time ago. There wasn't a whole lot of uh, craft beer around, and Harpoon was uh, one of my go-to beers because it was distributed uh, regionally, and mm-hmm. um, and I quite liked it. I don't get, I don't see it much out here. No, it's it's distributed maybe as far as Ohio, and that's it. They they have. This is one thing we're going to talk about in this interview as we go through this interview. Is each brewery we we tend to think about these big breweries as occupying a similar set of problems because they're a certain size, Mm -hmm. but they're actually their own distinctive thing. So if you're from uh, uh, Fort Collins. It's very different than if you're from Boston, Massachusetts. You know, Boston's a much bigger city. Mm-hmm. It's got much more density. Um, the distribution and retail environment is different. So there's a lot of different things that actually factor into this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, I think Harpoon has always been one of the strongest regional brands of large breweries in the country. You got a, f- a few that are really strong in this category, like Bells and Deschutes, right. that sell re- just do really well at home. Um, and then they don't have to go out. They don't have to expand very much. Like Rogue is an example of the opposite. Not very strong at home, but a nationally distributed brand. And internationally, yeah. Yeah. So uh, I thought it would be interesting for us to listen to Dan, go through this and listen to Dan talk. And you and I can kind of reflect on what it what it looks like and compare it to other things we've seen in the industry and, and just listen to the, the story and see what see what uh, Harpoon's situation is and kind of consider that in the national context. Yeah, and it's it's fun. And this is something I hope we can do a little more of because sort of picking apart or 
drilling down or whoever whatever catchphrase you want to use uh, on, yeah. a, on an individual brewery story you know their origin story is um uh and sort of their their history is really interesting because i think that's true the more we do it the more we'll find that every story has some commonalities but it's unique in its own in its own way um i think i mentioned this and i can't remember yeah i mentioned this because they did one with um with Boston Brewing is uh, there's a podcast called How How I Made This is basically all the mm-hmm. podcasts is just origin stories of certain businesses so it made me it got me thinking about about this and that uh, that as well so I'm glad that we're doing this today yeah <clears throat> well since you said that I, w- I was going to skip over the uh, history thing maybe we should just mention a little bit of the history of the brewery so before we enter the first the yeah first I think we should. Thing. So uh, this brewery was founded by three founders who were not brewers, mm-hmm. uh, and they went out and hired a guy who had just graduated from UC Davis, right. which makes it uh, kind of a unique brewery in that regard. Uh, most most brewers, most of the early breweries made their own beer. They were home brewers. They were DIY guys. So here it was a it actually seems very Bostonian that way. They felt they're very you know Boston's a very professional town, so they. Uh, they yeah. look for uh, like it's not a DIY kind of town. It's really you go you hire the guy who knows how to make the beer. That seems like a Boston approach, right? They started out making um, harpoon ale, which is kind of a like a halfway between a bitter and a mild sort of. It, it sounds like I, uh, when I was there, I was gonna I wanted to try this beer. I've never actually had this beer, right? Um, but it wasn't even on tap. So, um, <laughs> I couldn't taste it, uh, but I still aspire to it. But they still beer. brew it from time to time? Yeah, they have it in the tap room. Uh-huh. Um, and Dan was, I can't remember uh, who he was working for, but he had to, he, he was, he continued to hold down his regular day job for five years. Wow. And the brewery was not making money. And in fact, in 1992, I think it was 1992, 1993, they were almost ready to go out of business, and they decided to hold a uh, like an Oktoberfest kind of thing. Right, and it saved the brewery. It brought in enough money <laughs> that they could keep going for a few weeks. Pay the bills for a few more. Yeah, pay the bills for a few more weeks. <laughs> and while they were doing that, they um, they came up with this idea of doing an IPA. Mm-hmm. And lo- uh, people in um, uh, New England will know Todd. Todd Mod is that? Am I getting that name right? Um, who went on to Portsmouth and now has his own brewery in Kittery. Mm-hmm. He was, he's the f- brewer of the famous Kate the Great uh, Imperial IPA when he's at Portsmouth. Kind mm-hmm. of a famous local legend, sort of uh, their version of, uh, of uh, John Harris. Right. He started working on this beer that they would later call IPA mm-hmm. uh, and became their flagship. And at the, it was interesting to hear this story. One, one little funny, cool story. He wanted to get a kind of Car- darker caramel quality right and he couldn't find any malt that he really liked so at the very start he was sending uh 20 people at the brewery home with bags of malt and saying put these on cookie sheets and bake them and at a certain temperature for a certain <laughs> amount of time and they would come back and oh of course gosh. you know people were doing it some of them weren't doing it very well and like not paying attention and wasn't so great so then there was a diner across the the <laughs> the uh the street and uh-huh. so or I guess a bakery. Uh-huh. And on the off hours, the bakery said, yeah, you can use our oven. So then he went over there and he was toasting his malt over there. <laughs> That's great. It's a great story. Eventually, it, um, victory malt was invented and now they use victory malt. Uh, okay. so, and this is, and then, the, so then they introduced this beer IPA in 1993, which 
It was a big hit. And by 1995, when I was in upstate New York, that was the beer I was buying. Yeah. And it became the city beer of Boston. Yeah. Uh, I, I, uh, I married into the family a little bit after that. So like, I think I made my first visit in 95, 96. And my in-laws' fridges were full of IPA. Yeah. That really, it really had a really iconic label. And everywhere yep. you went, you'd see that label. Yeah. And it really changed the fortunes of the brewery. Um, the brewery's located on the river uh, or on the uh, water. And it's actually in this incredibly cool old building where they build ships. Uh-huh. Um, they were building uh, naval destroyers there. Wow. And there's, a, there's still this giant um, uh, beam that has rail on it. And right. they, used to, they used to run part, parts of the ship through the building on that rail. While they, they were building? Yeah, no. Oh. <laughs> no, when it was still a naval <laughs> destroyer thing. Uh, so it's a it's kind of in a remote part of Boston, or like in a weird industrial part of Boston. It's not actually remote; it's pretty close to downtown. But, right, but, um, but it's you not know. a lot of foot traffic. Now there is more and more, but it's still yeah. kind of off in a weird place. Right. So it would be like uh, the the inner east side here, or something like that. So that that's sort of a little bit of the background of the brewery. Uh, Do you happen to know? Is it still wholly owned by the three founders, or it's an ESOP? So uh, it is. Uh, I think it's it's forty eight percent owned by the. Uh, Employees. The, the employees and Dan had uh, Dan told me when I was there that when he retires he will sell his shares to the ESOP. Uh-huh. So I think as the people begin to cycle out, they'll uh, the ESOP will become more and more, you know, be more uh, greater. There will be less individual owners. Right. Yeah. So cool. yeah. So that's very cool. Um, and then leading in just to set up this last uh, this first clip. Right. One of the signature features of uh, Harpoon's business model, and I don't know if it was intentional or uh, environmental, they just kind of made this decision because they had to, uh, was that they self-distributed their beer in Boston from Mm. the start, and they continued to self-distribute their beer in the Boston city area, um, out out further out in Western Mass and and other states. They they don't do self distribution. To this day, they still do. They it They still in do self distribution in the Boston area. Yeah, in the hub. Huh? Yeah. So wow, <laughs> that that's a big effort. It is a big effort. I mean, I think it, you know when they started, they weren't a two hundred thousand barrel brewery, right? So uh, they they were. They grew into it. But now you've got, yeah, you got a lot of rolling stock and you got logistics and you got. Hmm. That's right. That's right. So why don't we listen to this first clip and, okay. we'll, and Dan will talk a little bit about the self distribution. All right. Here we go. And you mentioned briefly that you're self distributed, at mm-hmm. least around here. I guess you have, mm-hmm. once you got big enough, you're, you have distributors outside the, the state. But talk about self distribution. Uh, you started. We're, yeah. We're fortunate in Massachusetts that you can self distribute. So. You know, that's a very important item to us and all these franchise law, other beer reg, you know, issues. Self-distribution, we think, is an essential right for a brewer. I don't think anyone should be able to tell us how we can get our beer to market. But in the Boston metro area, so inside of 128, for those of you familiar with Boston, we just distribute ourselves. And outside of there, we have about 100 wholesalers, so from okay. Maine to Texas. Okay. And we started out self-distributing, Rich and I delivering in the truck. And then we brought somebody on to do our bottled product, and we introduced bottles a little later. Then they took everything. Then we took it all back. Then we sold it from 97 to 02, and then we bought it back in 02, and we've had it ever since. So we've, so we've kind of seen different sides of it. And I think I remember when we, we tried to, when we bought it back from the wholesaler, we were friendly. We knew them personally and got along well with them and just saying, 
you know, to us, Boston's our crown jewel. We're still over 20% of our business is the Boston metro area. You know, so for us, it's like it can't be an afterthought on a wholesaler truck. And we found when we went to a wholesaler, we really had the exact same number of salespeople as when we did it ourselves because it just wasn't getting the attention we wanted it to get. So um, we view it as kind of now as a crucial, you know, strategic advantage that we have. And in our hometown, kind of having deep roots, and I think it's going to be, it is really important. It's going to become more and more important over the next several years as the market continues to shake out. It's sort of like having a separate business. You have to, yeah. have, you have, to have trucks. Uh, I visited a distributor recently for a project I'm doing in Portland. And um, now that there is so much complexity in the market, both the number of beers that you're making, the number of places you can sell to, the logistics are a real nightmare. So uh, yeah. is it... Yeah. Has there ever been any question of, like, does this make sense? I think a lot of brewers are yeah. your size. Well, you know, it's interesting. You know the old saying about lobster, or the frog, I guess, and you put it in the cold water and turn the heat up gradually versus you drop it in. I remember when the, in the 90s, we were doing, I think it was over 300,000 CEs a year delivering without a loading dock. Wow. It's just kind of the business grew, and it grew, and it kind of like, and you kind of figure it out one way or another, and then it just kind of all of a sudden got to the point, it's like, we can't do this anymore. But then when we got it back, we kind of put the infrastructure in place because you're absolutely right. The and, and we're a very, very small wholesaler. But you go into any wholesaler today and you realize the back of the house is really running the operations now because if they don't do a good job with SKU management, it could sink their business. Yeah. It, it's really a challenge. And then the other side of this is, uh, you know, I talked to other brewers who work with wholesalers. And once you once the beer leaves the brewery, then it's in other people's hands. So there's that side of it too. Yeah. Here yeah. in Boston, uh, you know, retailers are another matter. But you you're, you're delivering beer to retailers, and the shape you want it to be. Absolutely, we take care of it. There there are days where IPA you're drinking that night in a bar could have been racked that morning, which mm -hmm. is pretty cool. Yeah. And it doesn't have that sitting in a warehouse for a week or two. And our guys are our drivers. And our shotguns, and they're they're an absolute advantage for us because they're part of our culture, they're part of our team, they're representatives of our. And we hear this all the time from accounts that they're our we're their preferred vendor just because, and more the back of their house because our our drivers are so courteous and helpful and mm -hmm. go that extra mile. They're not you know just kind of going through the process. Distribution is one of these interesting. Uh, uh, dimensions of the brewing industry that um, is, is so often hidden. And I'm fascinated by the difference between people who choose to self-distribute versus those who don't. It doesn't make sense in all cases, and it usually doesn't make sense when you're dealing with the volumes that Harpoon is because it's such a big brewery. Um, but uh, it's interesting to hear him talk about the different things that they considered and, and weighed as they were trading it back and forth between an whole, uh, independent wholesaler. Yeah, my thought was that um, it's interesting because by going through a wholesaler, it's sort of his point seemed to be that you lose a little bit of the individual sales uh, that you would get um, because they're representing multiple brands. And if you do it yourself, then you're sort of just, then your your delivery person is also essentially a representative of your brewery and 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 and, and sort of by default part of the sales team right exactly and yeah. that person can sort of bring back feedback they can also uh talk up the the new beers he's bringing or she's bringing i yeah. suppose yeah one thing that's not obvious to people is that 
breweries sell to distributors. They don't sell to retailers. Right. So there are other ways they can market and promote their beer, but they're not usually at the point of sale. But if you're self-distribute, you can be at the point of sale. You're the one who's actually talking, trying to talk a retailer into picking up that keg that you've got. Yeah. And as you were talking about, the economics are interesting. I'll, I'll uh, geek out for a second and say that oh, yes. this is one of the, one of the things, interesting um, areas of research in, in uh, economics is what we call the boundaries of the firm. And hmm. a, a good example of this is um, whether, for example, do you have in-house lawyers or do you contract out with lawyers? Do you have an in-house HR department or do you contact out for uh, HR? And more and more in the modern age, the information technology age, you've seen the boundaries of the firm shrink. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, the New York Times had a really good article about um, cleaning uh, um, uh people who worked on the cleaning staff of corporate offices uh there was like a it was a a, uh two anecdotes one was a woman who worked for the eastman kodak company in rochester and who started out cleaning offices and ended up being like the vice president of something or other yeah um, because she was a eastman kodak employee from the beginning um and they had uh um programs where she could go get educated she took classes and and um started i think working in accounts or something i can't remember the story but then there was a a modern day example of someone who works for apple and she's just a contract employee she doesn't get any benefits she doesn't get any extra uh, overtime and has no real connection to apple except that she shows up to clear clean their offices anyway uh this is a really long segue to say that uh this is interesting is sort of at what point at what size does it become natural to uh to export your your distribution and what uh um and when is it natural to um, keep it in-house and Harpoon's sort of a, a, a bit anachronistic because they do some of their own distributing locally and then they ship it out uh, even though they're as you say a much bigger size which means you've got a lot of headaches a lot of logistics headaches you've got a lot of infrastructure rolling stock that you have to keep keep up and maintain yeah so a lot of companies would just be quite happy just to to shift to shift that into some third party yeah and I think it's probably alluring for a lot of breweries to think well I'd like to get both uh uh, distributors cut and my cut uh, as I'm selling this, but then there's all these other things all you have to cost and yeah. expenses. I mean, <laughs> so, just think of all the just think of the trucks themselves and right. the insurance on the trucks and the upkeep and maintenance on the trucks, and yeah. and then you have to hire all those drivers so they become your employees, and then mm-hmm. there's that uh, the software to keep it all in in place. On the other hand, you know you can be much more responsive uh, as a as the distributor. So. Um, yeah, a local I mean, I, example around here was Ninkasi, who I used to see their Ninkasi trucks in Corvallis when I was down there working uh, a lot, uh, distributing around um, the Eugene and, and uh, Central Lamont Valley. Um, and then, of course, they ended up teaming up with ABI, right? Yeah. So this is one of those things where some breweries might do self-distribution and others might not based on the configuration of, of factors that... that all right, play. Yep. Well, so that's interesting. That is interesting. Uh, yeah, you're you're holding up a, a a Lord Hobo beer. I think it's time to start since we got three to get through. That's right. It's time to start uh, testing Lord Hobo from Woburn Mass. <laughs> Woburn Mass. Ma. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what do you got there? I got a session IPA called Hobo Life. Hobo Life uh, from the hills of Woburn Mass. So someone nah. from Lord Hobo is going to have to tell us where the, the genesis of the name Lord Hobo. Yeah, and in, in my three minutes of Googling, uh, I saw an article that suggests that somebody, a friend of one of the founders is nicknamed Lord Hobo, but I don't uh, know. Okay. that could also be apocryphal. It sounds sort of funny. 
<laughs> I don't know. I'm passing along random stuff I Googled. So so this is a session IPA. Do you want to know anything about it? Does it tell us? It says dry hopped and then in large, large letters, Citra. Ah. It's, Ooh, it's uh, very pale. It's very pale, but it's also for Ooh. for a uh, session IPA. That's really cloudy. It's cloudy, yeah, and quite quite light. I mean, it's uh, it's sort of straw, right? Yeah, I would say straw. It's straw color. It's got mm. a good head. It's got a lovely aroma, very Citra yeah. hops aroma. Almost, yeah. I'll let you do that. Very lemon, lemony, citrusy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. So I consider the gold standard of uh, of session IPAs to be uh, Fort George Overdub. That's just the one we get around here. That's true. That's there's there uh, there's session IPAs are one of the hardest beers to make because mm-hmm. you they often don't have enough body. Yeah, you can't hollow them out in the middle. Yet you yeah. don't want them too high. Mm. They can be imbalanced. Too much hop intensity and not enough malt. Um, actually, since we're talking about Harpoon, Take Five, their session IPA is one mm-hmm. that I really like. I think uh, Overdub and, and Take Five are my two faves. Mm. This has a really good flavor. It's pretty bitter. It is. And often they are, and I think that's just an, a, a function of when you strip away those that malt, uh, it's just harder to it's keep harder things to keep, in balance. Yeah. Uh, I, would, I would guess that there's a little more early edition hops than... Uh, than some of the session IPAs. Yeah, maybe because it's got a kind of a bitter snap. Um, I like the, I like the uh, the citrus flavors a lot. Yeah, I think it's pretty good. I would I would put this on the above average uh, spectrum for session IPAs, which is it's just a hard style to make. It is. Yeah, I quite like this one. I would, if I were making it, I'd probably want to go for a, a slightly richer mouthfeel. Yeah, that's always the challenge. Mm-hmm. And this this has the uh, very thin mouthfeel that we often carry. And you can tell, by the way, they it's very straw colored that there's there's very little uh, uh, caramel malt, if any. I would yeah, maybe I would, none. Maybe none. And I would might, say none. And that might be one way to get a little more mouthfeel. But but it's got a lovely aroma and a lovely flavor. Yeah, I like it. Mm-hmm. I put it. I would put it in my recommended side. I would definitely put it in my recommended side, and we're going to get to this this fresh boom sauce. But it, it's definitely an improvement over the old can of boom sauce we had the last time. Oh yeah, this is nice and fresh. Lots of good flavor popping. But I would, yeah, I would say orange and lemon, mm-hmm. sort of the main flavors I'm getting. Yeah, very citrusy. All right, good okay. job. Nice. Shall we go back to? Uh the harpoon interview yes we should <laughs> so that the next one um people who follow the industry closely might have uh, picked up on uh, a pay-to-play scandal that hit boston yeah and i asked uh Ooh, good yeah i asked dan about that because <laughs> not only do you have um the your own brewery situation but you have the market environment so right. you have different kinds of rules you have to play by and and we learned a while back that um Boston has some issues with with distributors trying to buy tap handles, and so I asked Dan about that. Okay, here we go. You, you mentioned uh, before we turn on the mic that uh, a local brewer here, uh, Dan Paquette, is that how you say yeah. his name? Um, Expert is actually out of the business now. But that's yeah. right. Right before threw a bomb and then left the business. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and we were all together that night, by the way. Oh, you were. Steve Hindy, Jim Cook, Rob Martin, Dan Paquette, and myself. We were at dinner and then upstairs in this. 
and having an event in the beer hall. Did you know he was going to drop the bomb? Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> no one did. No one did. So he drops the bomb and, and yeah. he says that the, the Boston's are pretty, uh, got some pretty dirty practices, some pay-to-play, which is uh, some wholesalers paying retailers to carry the product. Um, what's it like to do business in Boston? How's, I mean, does that, does you that know, reflect your experience? We've grown up in the system in Boston the way that it is. Do I, you know, we've gone to other cities, New York, Philly, Chicago. Is Boston unusual compared to those markets? Not at all. Okay. Um, in some ways, Boston's not as outrageous, perhaps, as some of those other markets. But, you know, you just figure out what the rules are in each of your markets, and you try to compete effectively. I think the whole pay-to-play thing, are there some excesses that go on? I'm sure there are, over-the-top stuff. Um, but sometimes I think people can hide behind other problems that they're having and blame it on pay-to-play. I mean, the idea that one of the beauties of our system is still a relationship business, and we built our brand because of relationships we built with individual bar and restaurant owners, and the right. fact that our beer did well or reasonably well or enough to have us get in or stay in. That's right. It's a strong brand. So it, and so, and if we've been shut out of accounts because these bigger wholesalers or bigger breweries do things that, yep, we have. We've we've taken that on the chin a bunch over the years. Hmm. But um, we would like to see a level playing field where we just all understand the rules. You know. Are you working with people who have a regulatory uh, idea in mind about how to enforce these rules? There's a big thing going on right now. Yeah, there's a... So it's, it, it's all part of this pay-to-play thing and yeah. other issues out there, but this, this treasurer has convened a task force to do a complete review of all Massachusetts alcohol rules and regs. Mm. And so they just they formed this task force, and now they form these committees to look into specific issues under this task force. Mm -hmm. And there are about five committees, I think, and I think we have two or three people on various committees. Those committees have just been formed. The first meeting of one was last week, I know, and Charlie Story, our president's on one. And it's made up of industry experts, supply brewers, wineries, wholesalers, um, regulatory folks, and so they're to come up from, you know, bottom-up, like, recommendations on, hey, how can we update these rules and regs? So uh, this is interesting to me partly because um, I've heard rumors about different cities being, having different, you know, either more or less uh, dirty uh-huh. cities, and I I, 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 I not really heard that much about Boston, so I don't really, still not totally clear how bad Boston is, but um, it's interesting, like, Relative. you, that, if you're a Boston brewery, you're going to have to deal with whatever Boston is. You, you know, that's where they started, and that's that was the environment they, they grew up in. So, um, Yeah, it's kind of like, um, uh, in the end, Lance Armstrong's defense of doping. It's like, well, if everybody's doping, then that's the competitive environment <laughs> you're in. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Or and maybe I, the steroid era in baseball. Who knows? And I do think because of um, – it is still a market, right? So mm-hmm. uh, if you build a strong brand – uh, resellers are going to want to have your beer on on tap. So at a certain point, that's the way to defeat the. To just make build a, a strong brand, and then that's that's the yeah, best way. If that's what the punters are looking for, then then you're going to have it. And it doesn't matter how much the breweries paid you to to to, to carry it. Yeah. Uh, it's odd in a way because um, you know these things just end up being costs that end up getting shared and eventually shared to consumers. And so you know the 
um, or end, end up at, at, at the end price point. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you if you throw in these things, um, then all all you do end up is just sort of shifting shifting the money around and then adding costs onto to doing business. So um, it's not a good thing in general for consumers. Um, it's interesting because in oh, here I go again. <laughs> I, I gotta I gotta stop this. But in economics, there's sort of two views of corruption. No, right? don't stop. That's what we're that's what we're paying the big bucks <laughs> for, man. There's corruption. There's two types of corruption. There's corruption that sort of adds to cost. So it's like if if there's a license that you're supposed to be able to get for ten bucks, but then you got to pay the guy at the desk another ten bucks. Right. Then you're just adding costs, and it's just simply a drain on an economy. Right. But then there's the corruption that allows you to um, sort of cut the red tape, and uh, so in there are some types of corruption where you know if there's just a whole bunch of unnecessary regulations that the government's there to to drive revenue. Maybe you need six licenses, and they each cost fifty bucks. Uh, but then you talk to the right guy and he can sort of get you through the first three licenses or something like that for 10 bucks and you save 50 bucks. Like I don't know. Anyway, the point is that there is some corruption that actually can be efficiency enhancing. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is one of those that's just a pure drain on, on, on the economy. So it's not a good thing in terms of, uh, of a consumer. Uh, it's got to be really tough if you're a if you're a craft brewer and you're trying to start up and that that's the environment you're faced with. And that's the guy that we were talking about, Dan Paquette. He was, uh, the, the, um, his brew is pretty things, which was this well-regarded darling yeah. in, uh, uh, in Boston, a gypsy brewer. Mm-hmm. And, um, they, uh, he just, he, I think he just got tired of it. He couldn't, he was having exactly what you're saying. He was having a hard time. And he, he wrote this post that said, you know, I'm getting screwed. People are paying to pay, right. uh, paying to play, and I can't afford it. And a pox on all your houses. And then he he left the industry. <laughs> okay, so you've, you've heard about this kind of stuff in a lot of cities. What about Portland, Oregon? Uh, from what I've talked to people, uh, Oregon is is really good. Oregon and Washington are pretty clean, is what I what I've heard. And yeah. these are just, I mean, these are secondhand. Sure, but I just uh, wonder what the sort of scuttlebutt was. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, interesting. That's got to be, yeah, what a tough moral dilemma you'd face if you're in that. Place. Oh, hey, okay. So, should we do one more of these? Let's do, let's do the next uh, Lord Hobo. Speaking of the Massachusetts uh, brewing scene, uh, we're back to Lord Hobo Brewing. This is called Glorious. They call it a Galaxy Pale Ale, but it's a 6.5% ABV, so I would call that an India Pale Ale, so a Galaxy IPA. Um, and I'm assuming that means Galaxy Hops, but Yes, gotta be. But, or the, either that, or it's Galaxy Class. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, dropping a sci-fi geeky reference. There. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> All right, so this is called Glorious. Let's try it. I'm looking forward to it. From an for purely from an audio perspective, you get a lot of bang for your buck when you open a, a can on the. The pod. Oh, interesting. Even as I pour it, it's another very cloudy but straw colored. Yeah. It's like it yeah. might even be paler. Oh, it's hard to say. This might be like a a uh, a house signature here. Yeah, that's really pale. And it's it's. I think it is paler than the other one. It's a uh, it's a New England IPA. It if, is. if you characterize New England IPAs by being sort of milkshaky, yeah, cloudy. Not like let's go back to our scale. What were we? Would you Ooh. say that's like about a six, maybe? Yeah, that, yeah. I was gonna say that. The patented uh, cloudiness scale. Yeah, we got it. We have to. <laughs> we got to like put a Wikipedia entry out quickly. That, that, that's right. The Allworth Emerson cloudiness scale. <laughs> uh, 
Well, it's got a great head. It's got a great head. It's a very creamy, thick head. It's got a really nice nose again. It's not a Citra now. It's Galaxy. So I don't know what what kind of aromas you're picking up there. Well, it's it's pretty. Cit- I don't know. It's pretty it's still citrus. Yeah. Maybe not Citra, but there's probably some Citra in it. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I'm just going in. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, the mouthfeel is not as uh, milkshakey as some of the other ones. And I, I see what they That's mean right. by pale ale. They've gone for, I think they're trying to indicate that the intensity of the hops will be a little bit lower than they would be in an IPA. So it's mm. a much more kind of smooth. Yep. Uh, it's the it's got. I'm, I bet the IBUs are are higher than the than the uh, uh, session IPA, but it's got a very smooth. Bitterness That's right. It doesn't feel not, as bitter, yeah. but it's got a nice little bitter snap in the end. It's got a very creamy mouthfeel, and uh, you get a lot of the the fruitiness up front, and then some nice bitterness as a finish. It finishes pretty clean. It's very fruity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the fruitiness is the thing that really leaps out at I'm me. trying to I'm trying to pin it down though the fruit that I'm tasting a little orange maybe is there some wine grape in there maybe yeah perhaps it's interesting it's a sometimes fruitiness is non non uh, specific mm-hmm. I like that I like it a lot I would definitely it's, it definitely seems in the New England oeuvre. Yeah. If we had this uh, in our lineup before, instead of the boom sauce, if we had this one in our lineup, because we had a whole bunch of 6.5% mm-hmm. New England IPAs. It would have fit better for that reason, too. It would have fit better, and also it would have been, uh, I think, uh, right up there near the top. Yeah. This is um, it's really nice. I can't. I, I wish I could be, be better at the, the fruitiness. It's almost a little bit of a blend i would even say maybe yeah. a little bit of peach in there and some orange um but it's just a really nice rich rich mouthfeel really good flavor really nice aroma and uh i i appreciate sort of the nice dry bitter snap you get at the end yeah it's a good beer i i like uh that's excellent i like that i like that it's not super intense they have not gone for 11 on all the yeah it's not like a a big cup of orange juice yeah disguises beer no it's 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 a beer with yeah that galaxy has just the slightest hint of of uh that kiwi stuff so i know galaxy is actually Mm -hmm. from australia not new zealand but it does have uh i think that's why i'm equating it with a white wine yeah i don't know no that's a good call i think uh yeah i think this is a very accomplished beer Mm. Ooh, okay i like that a lot all yeah, right let's get back on. to <laughs> so we keep we keep switching from uh boston to webin now we gotta go back to boston that's right okay so the next one we have here is a little bit about the boston context because okay. boston is a really particular city as anybody who has ever been to boston knows ain't no town like boston yep so and that could be said basically for any town um but when you're selling beer locally you're selling it to a particular people in a particular place so let's hear a little bit about boston all right, here we go. Well, you know, a lot of people come through here, whether they go to school or just tourists visiting, and um, our location, mm-hmm. this was one of the best decisions we ever made, and it, it cost yeah. us a lot. And it, when did you move here? We moved here in March of 87. Okay. It took so us, this. it cost us six months at a time when we were burning through our mm-hmm. founding capital. It was a tough thing. 
from September of 86. We identified this then, and we had a competing space available down in Hyde Park in an industrial park, which is, Hyde Park's a part of Boston, but tucked way down in the southwest, tough to get to. And, and we said, no, you know what, part of what we want to do from our vision, from our traveling, when we go to Europe and the breweries would be right in the center of town, is we want it to be visible. The only space in our brewery here that's been used for the same purpose, same purpose since we opened is our what we call the tasting room now, which was our tour room. Mm -hmm. But when we opened up on the other side, that we had our offices and we had the tour room and bathrooms. That was it. And that still uses the tasting room today. I mean, because tours were, getting people down here was crucial. And have you been, were you here 30 years ago, ever in this neck of the woods or 20 years ago? or? I I'm sure I strafed it. It really was a, there was a warehouse, warehouses and parking lots. Whitey Bulger like killed people down here. I mean, it was just a <laughs> lousy area, right? This is the old Naval, South Boston Naval Annex. Yeah. So, yeah, people thought we were crazy coming out here. And now the whole city has moved this way, where we have thousands of condos, apartments, thousands of hotel rooms, I mean, office buildings right here. And yeah. so it's turned out to be, for us, an incredible decision. No, we don't own. It's city-owned land, but we have a 50-year lease that we did in 2008, which is kind of a nice time to do, wow, it's do leases. Land. Yeah. Huh. Because it was a naval annex to the Charleston Navy Yard. And the feds closed it, turned it to the state, turned it over to the state, and the city turned it, state turned it to the city, and they turned it into this mar marine industrial park for water-dependent uses. We said we're 95% water. Right. <laughs> um, but it's fish processing, a bunch uh -huh. of people around here. Yeah. That's cool. Like Reebok's moving their headquarters right over here in the design center. Sam Adams is right over there. All right. Um, but we've loved it. But as you can imagine, as the cities come down here, we've added, we went from 5,000 square feet to 47,000 square feet. Beer Hall, mm -hmm. we've done everything we can to encourage more and more people to come down because that's really who we are. We're about the sociability of beer. I think we're going to hear a little bit more about the context beyond this, but, um, you know, Boston is just an, a weird, wonderful town. Um, <laughs> kind of love it or hate it. And uh, So I I've never visited. Uh, uh, do I take the, the original uh, space that they uh, leased is still the main brewery like they haven't had to expand elsewhere it was big enough in other words to handle all their yeah growth. It's, it's this interesting thing it's these warehouses it was this old naval uh building mm -hmm. so it's it dates back to the 1930s mm -hmm. and they first started out by leasing part of that mm -hmm. and then they expanded the lease and got a bigger part and got a bigger part and now the city has said we're not going to give you any more uh, we want to have this building, the rest of this building, go out to other businesses. I see. So it's actually an incredibly compact brewery. When you visit it, um, it it you and if, if I if you if you take a tour of it and you don't know anything about harpoon and you try to guess how big the brewery is, you might say like twenty thousand barrels a uh, year. You know, it's, right? It's not. It does not have a big footprint, so it's um, it's a pretty tiny little space. How big is the catamount plant in Vermont? Do you I don't. Know? I don't know. Having not visited that one, yeah. um, but I think they I think they do something like one hundred forty. If this is memory serves, like 140 out of the Boston one and the remainder out of the other one. I oh, think so it's something like that. Oh, okay. They do a lot out of the Boston one. They, they, they get the best use out of that space, huh? They do. Yeah, oh. they, really, they really know how to use that space. And it's in a good place for a brewery. It's uh, easily accessible by trucks. Right. Um, it's not in heavy traffic, so you can get in and out. Um, so that's all, all that's pretty good. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and do they have a nice space now on site a tasting room or a restaurant or yeah they have a relatively new tasting room and it is cool it's okay. giant um it's uh i don't know probably 
150 feet wide long and uh-huh. it's got these long tables and nice maybe the longest bar i've ever seen a bar that runs <laughs> it's kind of like an oval bar you can go up on both sides of it yeah it's like sort of this. shaped like a football and the servers are inside there cool um but yeah boston um boston is such a, a traditional and uh loyal city that to be the local city beer yes is a big deal like yeah. trying like getting the pole position on that yeah you know um this is a town that loves its Celtics, its Patriots, its Bruins, and its uh, who's one I forgot? Well, Red Sox. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> the one, the only the one guy, I care about. Says the guy wearing the Red Sox hat. <laughs> yeah, uh, and they love um, you know they love their town and they love everything about it. So I think it's a huge advantage for a brewery to become the city beer, and that's part of all of the the thing that goes into making Harpoon what it is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Boston is definitely very insular in that way and self-referential and mm-hmm. proud mm-hmm. very proud so yeah <clears throat> i say that coming from a long big boston family that's so. right so this last little bit uh just kind of as a capper about where uh, dan sees the brewery where they are and uh kind of what they're looking forward to in the future okay let's listen you know treehouse is obviously not taking very much volume away from harpoon but when you add up the hundred breweries in massachusetts then you got you got it from both sides uh, and then this whole idea of supporting the flagship becomes a different approach, yeah. you know, because yeah. uh, I wrote a... And our flagship happens to be in the hottest category <laughs> in beer, which has gone from about 70 IPAs six years ago to 1,500 today. Right? Yeah. It becomes a very interesting challenge. I mean, if, you, if that tires your flagship, or Sierra Nevada Pale Ale is your flagship, or it's Boston Lager... It's only, but ours is IPA. And you can say, well, IPA has been growing like crazy. Yeah, they absolutely have. But the growth is all the new, 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 other than the Lagunitas and a couple of others, right? So, yeah. oh, it absolutely is a challenge. I, it, the, you look across the numbers for the regionals like ourselves, and people are under real, you know, we're, we're your, in some cases, we're your dad, if we don't stay fresh and new, we're your dad's beer, which is not a good place to be. Right. And um, on the other hand, you're making. Tens of thousands. I don't know how many how many barrels of, of Harpoon IPA you, you make, but you have a giant. I mean, is it a wildly by by the measure of barrels, wildly popular beer? So you right. want to support the people who like this beer? Absolutely, absolutely, and it's so important to remember that. I think in our industry, we spend a lot of time talking to each other. We're a lot of, a lot of great people in the business, so it's easy to do. And you spend a lot of time following the great beer, beer advocate, etc. Like what's hot? What's the newest thing? And that's all well and good, but it is very important to step back on occasion and see, okay, and even, let's not even talk about Harpoon IPA for a second. Let's step even further back and realize that, wow, 80% of the market is still light yellow lagers from Corona, Heineken, to Bud, Bud Miller, et cetera, et cetera. There's a ton of beer out there that's not Trillium or Treehouse or Alchemist or whatever, and it's awesome what they're doing, what we're doing, but... You know, the goal is what we were talking about earlier, which is two-thirds of the draft beer in Portland is craft beer. I mean, yeah. I'd like to see I'd like to see two-thirds of all the beer in the U.S. be craft beer. I think the corona numbers are something in the craft industry we should be talking about. Why are people in the U.S. paying to have a beer shipped hundreds or thousands of miles from Mexico on trucks? You know, it's not to pick on corona, but we have a story as craft brewers that we can tell to go after big, big segments of the market that are not yet being serviced or not yet being satisfied by what we're offering. I'd rather focus on that 
more than trying to be something who we're not. Are you hoping that Harpoon IPA continues to be the brand, and is that something you're trying to support? Absolutely. And identify with Absolutely. Boston? Yeah, we believe we're really bullish long term on Harpoon IPA. I mean, is it going to undergoing you know lots of challenges now from a lot of new IPAs? Absolutely, no question. I think. We, we are still more than 70% of our sales are New England. Mm -hmm. If it was 30% New England, I'd be a lot more worried than I am at 70%. I love how deep we've been in our New England market. You know, we bought Catamount 17 years ago to really build another anchor in northern New England. Right. We have a half million people visit our two breweries a year. I mean, we run festivals. The stuff we do, the Harpoon helps, is to go a mile deep in our marketplace to kind of make ourselves part of a community. And... I think that, knock on wood, we've, we've, we've achieved a great deal in 30 years. We have a lot more to do. Boston is a place that embraces tradition. It embr it's, it's an intensely personal place. Mm -hmm. You know, who are you? Who's your father? Who's your mother? Well, you know, the <laughs> um, And that stuff kind of matters here, maybe more than it does. I know it matters every place. I don't think we're quite as trendy as some other parts of the country. We kind of not, don't get caught up in some other stuff as quickly. We kind of get things maybe a little bit later at times. Or or we adopt things and kind of do them in our own way here in New England. Um, I think there's an intense pride that comes. You know, people, New Englanders tend to love New England. Mm -hmm. um, and are, are Other than like parts of February and March and April and May. <laughs> um, we're pretty, pretty happy being here. Um, so we're really, we are of the region, proudly in the fabric of the region, and we embrace it fully. You know, it's not, we've always been, one of the reasons, you know, when we were battling in early days against Jim Cook, mm -hmm. and we were, he was Boston Beer Company of Brewing of Beer in Pittsburgh. Right. He hated us, you know, but we were proudly, hey, we're the only, we have Mass Brewing License 001, we're the, we're the real deal. We're... Would you like to see Harpoon in, say, 25 years? Uh, what What's like an ideal situation for Harpoon? I would like Harpoon to be a, you know, a nationally recognized leading regional craft brewer in the Northeast, 100% employee-owned, known for making incredible beer, fun sociability, and just being deeply woven into the fabric of New England. What size do you think you'll have to be to do that? You know, I'll say this, and not trying to be cute, I don't necessarily know size matters so much okay. in that regard. You know, we're roughly a 200,000 barrel brewery now, which I think gives us some a real platform to do a lot, 200, almost 200 employees. I don't know how much bigger we'd have to get to be more relevant, you know. Um, and the exciting thing for me is going to be to watch the next generation of leaders here at Harpoon figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> Not your Not anytime soon, Liz. <laughs> <laughs> and there you go. I think uh, with a brewery like we've got, it's interesting. We have these two contrasts between uh, Lord Hobo on the one hand and Harpoon on the other. Harpoon, and then, and then Boston beer thrown in there. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's all. A, a brewery like uh, Harpoon and a guy like Dan Canary, they they have this sense. He's been doing this for thirty-one years. He yep. kind of has a longer. He can see a little bit further than maybe the Lord Hobo guys can. Not to say that Lord Hobo, but a younger brewery can. And uh, that last little piece, uh, it's interesting to just kind of hear him 
you can tell that he is actually thinking about decades in the future. And yeah. That's kind of a, and it, and the idea of winning the next quarter or like, you know, doing all these things is not, not exactly what he's thinking. of. Yeah. Well, when you've got three decades behind you and you can start taking the long view, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, one of the things I've been asking myself is, you know, they have Harpoon IPA, which is an iconic beer. It's brewed probably to pretty close to the same recipe when they started. And so, uh, it's always dangerous if you start tinkering with your your iconic beer, uh, but at the same time you kind of want to keep it f- fresh and sort of relevant in a to the modern palate. So I I've always wondered how people how people deal with that. I think that I think a lot of breweries, especially in the Northwest, that have built their uh, business around uh, an iconic IPA mm-hmm. are facing this challenge. Like, do we just keep it the same and then introduce new ones around, or do we tinker with the recipe? Yeah, I I think in Harpoon's case, it would be interesting to, I wish I'd ask him that question. That'd be great. Should have been there. Yeah, he should have been there. (laughs) By the way, we got to hear from your lovely wife, Sally. I know, you could hear her. (laughs) I will say, just to answer, or just to reflect on what you just said, um, Harpoon IPA is a pretty cool beer. Like, if I had to go forward with a beer, I would... I would be pretty happy with Harpoon um, because it, it tastes, it does not, it's not like a modern IPA, but it still tastes pretty modern. Mm-hmm. The, the flavors are not getting weird. Like some of the, you know, some, some of the brands that are a little bit older have yeah. beers that seem quite a bit more dated. I, I mean, I think so, so it holds up well. I think it holds up well. It tastes yeah. more like a, what we'd think of as a pale ale now, less yeah. less than like a I mean, modern I probably IPA. haven't had it since 2000 when I graduated. So. Oh, wow. Yeah, I should have brought in some. I should have brought some back. That would have been good. But that would have been. I failed. I failed you. <laughs> well, you brought a lot of beer back. So. That's true. And one of the beers you brought back, uh, that was well done, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> was, was, was Boom <laughs> Sauce, which we were tepid on. And uh, maybe the reason was the... Uh, the older cans. We're going to try a fresh can now. By the way, I do want to say that I've been sort of sipping on this glorious uh, beer. And and just for the Lord Hobo guys, you call your boom sauce an IPA and you call glorious a galaxy pale ale. I would call glorious an IPA because this is right in the wheelhouse of an IPA. And I would call the boom sauce a, an imperial IPA or yeah. a double IPA. Anyway, that aside, I wouldn't, I, I'm now prepared to declare, I think I can I can hear them there in Woburn nodding and saying okay the thanks. wise yeah <laughs> thanks wise, for your advice wise, wise man on the wise man on the <laughs> podcast we'll, you've solved our problem we'll file that right away uh, but I'm liking the it, with every sip I like the glorious more and more and I think that I, this would be um, if I, if we were doing this again I think this would tie well, I can't even remember now what the beer was we chose for the top the top beer I, I remember the, the look at the label <laughs> yeah it was Bent River. Uh huh. Something like that. Bent, bent water. <laughs> Something. <laughs> Boy, we're old men. Yeah. Our minds. Just that was don't three work. weeks ago. Anyway, I would I would think that Glorious actually would challenge for the top spot in my in my estimation. It's that it's it's that good. It's warming up nicely and it's 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 going down. Well, apropos a little, a little too fast. <laughs> <laughs> and apropos of your most recent comment, now that we poured out boom sauce. It does, especially given the expectations in uh, New England right now, this thing is really clear. Yeah. It's just barely, I would say, barely hazy, kind of a honey-colored beer. Yeah, it's uh, slightly more yellow than the straw color of the other two, which, by the way, they're side-by-side now, and they're almost identical, except, really for, the, except for the Glorious is, is more hazy. But so this one is quite clear. It's quite clear. So I think if people buy it with the expectation, it says... Um, Boom Sauce is our New England style IPA. Well, it, it's actually 
glorious is your New England style. (laughs) (laughs) I hate to to break it to you. (laughs) Just some simple advice from a couple of humble Oregonians here. I mean, they're only got 400% growth. We... They're clearly doing something wrong. That's right. <laughs> we were here to, we're here we're to, to save you. We're guys. here to set them straight. <laughs> uh, hmm. All right. So the Roma is better. I can tell you that immediately. Yeah. That last one had some oxidative notes and mm-hmm. it had a kind of a, an almost savory quality. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm really happy to that say now this that, is much better. that they, it yep. has neither of those notes. Mm-hmm. So. Wow, the head's really like a. What am I picking up? Almost banana, maybe. Yeah, there is something. It's not from the, the yeast, though. It's definitely from the hops. The aroma was definitely interesting mm. to me too. Wow, that's almost a. That's almost an entirely different beer. I mean, it's been three weeks. I don't remember, but. But that's uh, that's the difference. We can't even remember the beer we chose as our favorite. So um, <laughs> yeah, we've ruined. Trying our, to convince people we've that we our remember. Credi- uh, we've ruined our credibility. Uh. But it goes to show you what, what probably time and heat can do to, uh, uh, to a beer. And, may, and maybe the smelly socks that are in your suitcase along with it or something. Uh, what, what are the fried uh, ripe plantains called when you go to a Cuban restaurant? What are those called? Oh, uh, yeah. Maybe that's the smell I'm getting here. Not quite banana. Ripe plantain. I don't remember. We were just there the other night. Hmm. Yeah, that's a nice beer. And the other thing is that I distinctly remember how how much the alcohol shone through. Mm-hmm. And for me, I don't like that. And I'm not getting that almost at all right now. Totally. I agree. I really agree. I mean, it's a profoundly different beer. Yeah. and That's I, a whole other podcast there, how much time and, yeah. and time degrades these beers. We should plan ahead and buy a bunch of beer and let it sit for a while. Hmm. I actually really like this beer now. <laughs> yeah, it's it's nice. It's um, mission accomplished. <laughs> I would say it's not it's not a New England IPA according to the expectations of the market, but um, but it's no, a great IPA. That's it, right. If you're selling outside the the market, um, for sure the glorious is what I would expect when you call me. Not, oh, now I'm getting some alcohol in the end there. Uh, so it's still a little bit boozy. Woo. Um, but the glorious is what I is what I would consider a sort of stereotypical New England IPA and. And uh, the boom sauce is just boom sauce, baby. Boom sauce. Yeah. All right. So thank you very much for uh, yeah. And Eli for uh, we didn't we didn't actually explain this. Uh, a local guy named Eli who's a Lewis and Clark alum. Go go Pios. Go Pios. Uh, is friends with the guys there, and he lists, He's a listener. Listened to our podcast. I think he was probably disappointed that we didn't like boom sauce, and arranged to have some beer brought beer sent out. So thanks, Eli. We appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thanks very much uh, to Eli and um, good job, Lord, Ho- Lord Hobo. If of the three, I think that uh, my big fave is the Glorious, and if it were sold locally, I would definitely seek it out because it's really good. But the Boom Sauce and the the Hobo Life, Hobo Life. Are, I'm, are also I'm like, have you had the Hobo Life since it's warmed up? No, let me try that one. The bitterness is is falling back a bit. The malt's pop, popping a little bit more. Oh, yeah, you're definitely right. Yeah, it's another, nice. thing, another thing that happens to beer with temperatures. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I often like to get to let my beer sit and, and, and these have, a little. these have been sitting here for an hour, and then you brought them over in the car, so they're, they're a little bit warmer. It's nice. Yeah, nice. All right, well, thanks very much for seeing that beer got into our hands, and 
um, uh, good job. All right. And yeah, and thanks to uh, Dan Canary and everybody at Harpoon for showing me a good time when I was there and doing this interview with us. All right. Now it's time for the mailbag, which actually is kind of full this, this time. I know. Which is great. Let's if, maybe right. I'll make too big a deal out of that and just pretend it's normal. All right. So a good podcast would have settled this earlier, but um, should I take the first one? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's, let's do it that so way. So the first one is uh, from Lindsay uh, Dugan. I'm going to... I guess that's how we pronounce her name. Uh, and she's uh, from Seattle. I grew up and started drinking beer in Seattle. I noticed you guys have not mentioned Seattle beer scene at all. Is it that inferior to Portland? Uh, also, I know from my visit to the Guinness factory uh, that it also... Uh, yeah, that, I think I... I think, yeah, I think there was some, there's some... I noticed that when I printed it out. <laughs> They Sorry, also make a big deal about their water rights. How important is the water to the brewing process? I know, being from the Pacific Northwest, maybe I take for granted the excellent water that our brewers have access to. All right, so two things. First, Seattle. Uh, yeah, we don't yeah. actually... We, I was just... When, when I read this prior to the pod, I said, yeah, it's true. We don't ever mention Seattle. <laughs> Seattle. So for those of you not from the Pacific Northwest, you have to understand the relationship between Portland and Seattle. Seattle just a little bit. Uh, Portland is definitely the little brother to Seattle's. It's much smaller than Seattle. Mm-hmm. It gets much less national, national attention. And, and yet it's and it pretty feels- much superior in every way. <laughs> so it's hard because... Uh, <laughs> it's hard with knowing this knowledge. You know, We let people uh, geek on Seattle and then... Um, Said try, like a little brother. Try to, keep the, try to keep the New York Times from exposing too much about Portland. No, uh, it's true. Seattle has a great beer scene. We... It's it's just a thing that it's it's local. It's similar to the Portland beer scene, so we tend to be very hyper local here. Where there's so much beer going on right here, and so when we talk about beers other than Portland, we tend to tend to go farther than than Seattle. And that is actually another big thing is that Seattle and Portland have a ton in common. If you were to be dropped into a neighborhood in yep. Seattle and then dropped into a neighborhood in Portland, you'd have a hard time distinguishing them. They really feel the same. They're West Coast cities. They're Northwest. The weather's the same. Beer culture is very similar. Yeah. They're very, very similar. And even even as far as Vancouver, BC, the beer culture is pretty similar. And yep. uh, all three are great beer cities. All three have great beer scenes going on, great brewers. And uh, it motivates me. Uh, maybe I'll try to convince Jeff to, to take a little trip and we can... Let's we, do it. We can, we can wanna, do it. I'd like to interview the guys at Fremont and Rubens and maybe we'll find a couple others. That's Sweet. Okay, so we'll, 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 we'll correct that. Thank all you, right. Lindsay, for that. We're on it. The second is uh, water. Yeah. We've even discussed doing a whole pod on water. Yeah. We've uh, got to find a person who can make that interesting. <laughs> because we can't. No. We're, we're not interesting anyway. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> that would kill us. The last thing you want us to do is be reading what, we've, what, uh, reading what we found on Wikipedia or something. Uh, yeah. I mean, this thing that you hear about Portland as well, which is that we have this great, amazing water that comes from this huge watershed uh, in the Cascade Mountains on, Mount, on the side of Mount Hood. It's untreated. It comes to you fresh from the reservoir. Uh, it's amazing mountain water. It's basically neutral. There's nothing in it. It's rainwater. It's rainwater. You can do whatever you want with it. Um, uh, and so that sort of gives brewers here a palate to, to kind of take it wherever they want. Um, but water is huge in brewing. Yeah, it can be. I mean, um, the thing that water water can add to beer, and at this point we know enough about water chemistry that if it's bad water, uh, you fix it. So it's a it's another tool. It's a fairly subtle tool, but mm-hmm. it's a tool that you can use to tinker with flavors in your beer. Yeah, and then there's 
interesting things like what we found in uh, in Burton, where the water is so distinct, it has so much sulfur in that case, that it becomes sort of a, a local style. Yeah, the um, snatch. The snatch. <laughs> <laughs> Don't let anyone convince you that's good. Yeah, I liked it. I liked it. <laughs> it's horrible. It's what you convince yourself because you got nothing better. All right. Uh, so uh, look for our amazingly insightful and and uh, scintillating riveting pod, riveting pot yes. on, on water that's coming up. Um, so uh, water is important, and we'll and and we're getting there. The next one comes from Stuart Carter in Birmingham, which he referred, which he wrote in his email B H A M, which. At first, I was reading as BAM, but I was thinking, oh, I bet they say BHAM. Anyway, Birmingham. Or maybe he's just lazy and doesn't want to spell the whole thing out, so he gave you the abbreviation. I Googled it, and it's a thing. Oh, it's a thing. Okay. But um, I don't know. Yeah, let us know. Is it BHAM or BAM? BAM. I like BAM. I like BAM. <laughs> Should be BAM, by the way. <laughs> we can send some boom sauce down to BAM. <laughs> uh, so I'm just going to read this because it's a comment, not a question. In March, I worked with a local brewery of uh, produce a cask beer to celebrate 10 years at the J Clyde, which I believe is a local pub down there in BAM In kicking the idea back and forth. We came up with an old new England IPA with, uh, excessive ease in the spelling. <laughs> we made a new England IPA with entirely old England ingredients, malt hops, water profile, yeast result. I described it as tasting like toasted white bread with golden syrup and bitter marmalade. My wife who doesn't like bitter came back for fourths. We were one of the first Firkins to float at the event, which I think means what we would say blow here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yes, it's possible to make a New England IPA with Maris Otter and Yeast London Ale 3. All right. Thanks, Stuart. We will maybe try that eventually. That's cool. Yeah, you should have found a way to send some along, man. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, Lord Hobo figured it out. That's, Come on. That's right. That's entirely across the country. You're only in BAM. Samples of it did, or it didn't happen. <laughs> uh, no, that's cool. I, I'd be very interested in trying that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, sh- oh, wait a minute. This is Sean again. Yeah, Sean again. You take Sean and I'll... Well, there's two points. Why don't you read the first one and I'll read the second one. All right. So first... has, yeah, two, two different things. So we've been going back and forth about packaging. I was on my little kick about why on earth would you give away extra beer and then we started talking about oxygen bottles and everything okay so here we go i think i confused you guys a bit when it comes to counter pressure filling patrick brought up the fact that co2 is more dense than oxygen should settle to the bottom of the can this is certainly true but it's an oversimplification of the purging process i'm all about oversimplification (laughs) when co2 is injected into the can before the fill it actually mixes with the oxygen rather than forming discrete layers so the advantage of the counter pressure filler is that the can slash bottle is sealed during the purge stage, which allows for the pushing of the oxygen out of the can with the CO2 until CO2 is the only thing left. The non-counter-pressure line, on the other hand, will just reduce the amount of oxygen in the can without fully eliminating it. And he said in an actually quite long version of of this description, uh, which included a diagram from a textbook, (laughs) uh, that most cans are not counter-filler. They're the other... The non-counter pressure line, he says. So that's one reason why he's saying that. Because we would we'd been arguing that maybe cans are better because right. there's less cap space. And right. So again, this just once again argues that we got to get somebody who knows about packaging in here to give us the whole detail. Cause yeah. Well, is, I think Sean's probably banging his head against the wall because every time we have more questions. So I still have the question. I'm sorry, but if you fill the can to the very brim and then slam a cap on the top on top of it, then you don't leave. 
any room except for what's in the dissolved dissolved in the liquid maybe I don't know. all right sean come on <laughs> time for a fourth round <laughs> <laughs> maybe we should just get sean on skype and he's our he's our guy you know what that's so, so there's two pods we've been talking about a lot but they require a lot of work and so yeah. that's why you never hear them <laughs> 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 one is water and the other is packaging yeah uh, i think we can get packaging water is going to be more of a challenge but yeah. we'll, we're gonna I, I endeavor to do that so we're gonna figure this out sean we will get to the bottom of it and you can stop banging your head against our wall because we're so dense <laughs> all right go ahead second point okay uh, this is still Sean. This goes back two or three podcasts uh, to uh, some of your fine social media twittering where you posted photos of 22s filled at different levels. That's right. And you were saying that to fill it higher than you need to, we right. learned that the 22 is actually fairly low in the thing. And you were saying you, yep. you get an extra ounce. Yeah, the bottles will hold 24 ounces to the very top. Right. And so if it's halfway up the neck, that's actually about 23 ounces. And I was saying, well, that's crazy. No good business person would be filling an extra ounce into your beer. And then now we have Sean saying, uh, giving us a little, uh, a little truth. A little learning. Going to, on. to Patrick's point about overfilling, he's missing the cr- a crucial economics term, false economy. I don't know if that's actually a thing. But yep, you, yep. Okay, all right. Go, Sean, go. Uh, while it's true that Breakside is giving away a free ounce of beer, it could be a side effect of their filling practices. For example, they might know that filling a bomber to 22 ounces results in a total package oxygen of 200, uh, 200 parts per billion, while filling to 23 ounces gets them down to 20 parts per billion. In that circumstance, it would make a lot more sense to fill every bottle with an extra ounce of liquid, which doesn't actually cost much, in order to get extra shelf life that the lower dissolved oxygen level provides. The brewery would only want to decrease their fill level to 22 ounces if they could improve their process to decrease the dissolved oxygen at that fill level. So take that. Yeah, absolutely. All right, way to go. Science, TM. Uh, yeah, I tip my hat. That's a per- that's a great explanation. Well well explained and makes perfect sense it to me. It totally makes perfect sense. Yeah. So I have, now I know. And the truth is, knowing, knowing Ben Edmonds. And knowing Breakside. Yeah, I they, bet, want, they want as low a DO levels as they can get in their dissolved oxygen I bet. I bet that's get. exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you very much, Sean. Perfect. See, everybody learns. Everybody. This is exactly what we wanted from the mailbag because we know hive mind is smarter than we are. That's right. Like <laughs> a hive mind of like four people is smarter Most than we are. are smarter. <laughs> We have a beer podcast, for God's sakes. That's right. We don't know Astro Elbow. Uh, Okay. All right. Well, uh, thank you very much for the people who contributed to the mailbag. Please, if you haven't contributed to the mailbag, think about contributing uh, your ideas, your thoughts, uh, your feelings, um, your hopes for the future, anything, anything. We'll take it all. So thanks very much for listening to the podcast. A few words about, uh, a few words going out about how to contact us. Uh, Jeff blogs at Beervana blog. Uh, it's got a new address. It's beervanablog.com. He tweets at at beervana, and there's the Beervana blog Facebook page, which is probably the best way to get in touch with us. You can also uh, contact us through the email. Jeff at beervanablog.com. There you go. And Patrick blogs at Beeronomics. Well, he doesn't really, but he tweets at Beeronomics, <laughs> which is at Beeronomics on the, on the Twitter feed. Uh, and by the way, I don't think you realize this, but because you never go to Facebook. No. But you, every time you tweet, it goes on to Facebook. And so your Facebook page yeah. is filled with, with, with tweets to which people have started conversations, which I know you never see. Really? Right? Yeah. Is that true? That's totally true. Yeah. So about, I don't know, six, seven, eight years ago, I figured out how you could get your tweets to automatically post to your Facebook page. Yeah. And that's 
the only thing that ever happens to my Facebook page, and I never actually go to my Facebook. Page. I know. I'm I'm telling you this because there's this whole world you're ignorant about. So that's wow, funny. The Facebook, the yeah. social media. It's so interesting. It's, it's interesting. I'll go. I'll go. I'll check it out. All right, and uh, go ahead if you're on iTunes and uh, subscribe for sure and rate us. If you like us, don't rate us if you don't. That's right. We're on Google Play. You can probably do something like that on Google Play, yeah, too. If you, SoundCloud, you do something cool. like Sure. Rate us if you see a rating and you like us. If there's something us. with a thumb and it's up, click it. If there's something like a heart, click it. If there's something that says subscribe, do that. If there's five stars, click on all five. That's right. Definitely. Um, <laughs> whatever else that seems like a good thing for us, do that. Yeah. If you don't like us try to forget yeah ignore and, every, ignore yeah, the previous don't don't yeah that <laughs> that thumb that pointed downward you don't want to don't touch that no that's just, <laughs> just mean yeah come on don't be a hater all right uh i'm gonna grab the glorious i'm gonna go Ooh, he's going boom saucer and hobo life i'm going hobo life hobo life all right yeah, yeah it's, it's warmed still, up it's still pretty early nice. in the day too yeah that's true all right cheers uh cheers to uh the folks at harpoon cheers to the folks at Lord Hobo and Eli for bringing it to us. And cheers to you, Patrick. And you, Jeff.